Ash Blossom is Britney, bitch, because like every rogue strategy hates that card. Hey guys, welcome to the first turn a Yu-Gi-Oh podcast where three grown men talk about our favorite card game. My name's Nikolai. I'll be your host today. With me are Jordan. Like, shouldn't it just be like I'm your host because they should know that by now that you're the host? It's new listeners, bro. You never know. Okay, fair enough. Carry on. Hi, I'm Jordan. I'm here. And uh, also with us is Cody. Possibly. Possibly. We don't know, but he's probably there. Okay. So for today's episode, we're going to be talking about a subject a lot of us are aware of, but might not have mastered yet, and that's side decking. Probably one of the most important parts of the game not including your main deck. Uh, for those of you that don't know what side decking is, uh, basically it's just a 15-card little mini deck that's set aside from your main board and your extra deck that you can use to uh, switch cards. But what? Carry on. Carry on. Carry on. Yeah. It just lets you uh, switch cards in between games to kind of tailor your matchup and try to help you win. Uh, do either of you want to explain why side decking is important? <laughs> yeah, Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> um, so side decking is super important because your main deck might not have what it takes to take on certain matchups, and you can't compromise your main deck in a certain way. But if you have the side deck, you have the option of accessing cards for said matchup. And swapping out maybe a few cards here and there to kind of optimize that matchup a little more in your favor. Um, saying that, I have definitely seen many a people try to play this game competitively without a side deck. And they've seen success, but mind you, that was back in like the early ages of the game where you could see success without a side deck. Was it right? Probably not, but hey. So... The biggest thing with the side decking is um, a lot of the time you're going to be playing games twos and three, uh, two and threes. With the math on it, the majority of your games are going to be played post sideboard. So having a proper side deck to help you tailor your deck against these matchups for these games two and threes just increase your odds of actually winning your matches. Again, they'll help fix the matchup in your favor or potentially have like cards that'll completely blow your opponent out. I like how Cody just throws me under the bus there to try to make sure that I'm still like, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> what a guy. Wow, you have such a fucking pessimistic view of the world. I didn't want to go on a 10 minute little rant when. That's fair. I mean, can't you, can't you keep podcast. it under, can't you keep it under a minute? I could. This, this is Cody we're talking about. Whatever we're at now, for Nine, minor little eight, fucking one-liners you can eight, get off the eight, first page nine. of Google. Coming here for the fucking talent. Coming here for the special skills <laughs> that I bring. <laughs> I do want to stress that this episode is less about what to side deck right now for this format, and more about the theory behind side decking as a whole. Um, just to kind of keep this episode future-proof from anything, the the thing with side decks is because you're using it to tailor your deck against certain matchups uh, means that the side deck from format to format is going to be extremely fluid. Just kind of like how 
hand traps are very fluid where this format, Ghost Ogre's probably not the best hand trap you could play, but who knows three, four months from now when we have new product and new decks, it could be the best hand trap in the game. Also, I'd like to make note that sometimes side decks don't just change format to format. They can change day to day just yeah. based on like what's Oh, that's out that's there. my fucking favorite. Okay. That's gonna lead me into one of my patented fucking rants. I love it when I tell somebody that A, B, and C is like what's standard and you have to accommodate for said variables and then something changes overnight or over the weekend because of an event and they'll come back to me the next week they'll be like i thought you said a b and c was correct well that didn't work for this specific thing and i'm like yeah you know how much has changed obviously a b and c isn't fucking good now because that's you're living last week shit changes real quick Mm-hmm. yep I know for me, my side deck probably changes between every single tournament that I enter. Not only because, like, tournament results change how people are building their decks, but I also have to kind of cater my side deck based on the tournament that I'll be going to. Like, if I'm going to a locals here with, like, Fusion Gaming, I know for a fact that I'm not going to be playing against a whole bunch of meta. I'm going to be playing a lot against a lot of rogue, a lot of, like, back row decks. So my side deck will change to reflect that where I'm playing a lot more like single target removal or back row hate. Whereas if I was playing in like a large 200, 300 person tournament, I'd probably have my side deck tailored much more to deal with things like Drytron and VW right now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the side deck is easily one of the like most overlooked parts of deck building and the game in general as well as being like possibly one of the hardest things to do in this game mm-hmm. so to kind of break down the side deck um, and just kind of get ourselves familiarized with um, how it's usually going to be built there I find that there's specific types of cards that usually belong in a side deck uh, you have things like blowout cards. These are going to be cards like Cycle Reader, uh, Reader, Imperial Order. They're going to be very powerful cards against very specific decks or very specific mechanics that might not be super popular or uh, might only be featured in one of the main decks. For example, Cycle Reader. You're only really going to be siding it in against... Uh, Drytron, and maybe Eldritch to a certain extent. And you're not really going to want it against other matchups. But this card is going to be so strong against those matchups that usually just playing it against them can end their turn or just outright win you the game. I think After th- this is where I'm going to butt in. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think what people need to understand right from the get-go, because like you said, it's a very misunderstood concept and knowing how to decide. If it was easy, then Yu-Gi-Oh! would be a solved game. Uh, if You need to, right from the get-go, understand what it is to side. And, like, obviously, that's your sideboard. That's what you bring in, game two and three, yada yada yada. Everyone's read the fucking little booklet that comes with the starter deck. What it actually is, is when you're building your 40-plus card deck, 
you have your pile, right? You have your deck that you're going into with game ones. That's what you're confident with that you gives you the highest chance to win game ones. That usually will have a broad, wide range, right? It'll have a very large overlap of answers. Like your deck in some way does your thing that covers such a wide reach that that's what you are confident in playing right now. When we're talking about side deck cards, you're no longer talking about how do I beat the meta or give myself the highest chances in the meta. You're now looking at what gives me the highest chances against very specific opponent. So we have to narrow that field down a bit, right? You're kind of going <laughs> in, you're building your your main deck like a cliche video game shotgun, right? Real widespread. If you're trying to go for the wide shot to hit everything, but then your side deck should be a sniper rifle. Things that are pointed at very specific things. And you're now, instead of just trying to have a relatively powerful wide approach, you're having a very condensed, just like polarizing single option that if you knew you were going to play against nothing but dark decks the whole tournament like i'll, I'll use an example okay there was a region the very first uh shonen jump championship series this is before ycs the very first tournament that uh teleport dark armed was a deck right telly dead mm-hmm the deck that won was not a Dark Arm deck. Dark Arm was head and shoulders the best deck in that format, but it didn't win. Why? Because the guy that won was a Gladiator Beast player. I don't remember his names. This is literally 13 years ago. But the reason why it was notable and why I'll never forget it is this guy decided to play GBs and main decked three copies of Shadow Imprisoning Mirror. Yeah, I was there for that event. Yeah, so obviously this is a very dated thing, right? And it's, there's not a lot that you care for for specific cards. But the reason why it's so notable is this guy had a card that was so widely side-decked and knew for a fact if he got out of the rogue bullshit rounds where if you've entered a very large tournament with like 2,000 plus players, you'll know what I'm talking about, where the first couple of rounds are just flooded with rogue garbage that you have to hope you win. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. Now that you're kind of exclusively playing meta, only players that have been winning out, you're going to be seeing only meta strategies. So this guy took the Shadow Imprisonings out of his side deck, main decks them, and just crushes every Teleport Dark Armed player because he played a very reliable strategy and just main decked out to what was the consistent meta strategy. So you can still use that approach now. If you knew for a fact you were going to play against nothing but VW, would you not already want to be side deck or main decking rather Lancias? Like, that's one of the reasons why things like DD Crow was seeing a lot of play a month or two ago because everyone was on Eldritch. So people started taking DD Crows out of the side deck and throwing them in the main deck because now they knew more often than not, the DD Crow was going to be live game one. So that's kind of puts into perspective, like instead of just having a wide range of outs and strategies for your main deck, 
you're now like hyper focused on dealing with one thing in a very specific strong way so that's like you got to understand the difference between what your main and side is and just playing cards that are like good is not proper for the side deck it's meant to be matchup specific blowouts and that's what you need to be doing yeah mm-hmm. i mean kind of a counter argument though not always is it just uh matchup specific but also like some decks kind of need to play certain cards in their side just for the fact that they're going to be seeing those matchup specific cards uh case in point is a lot of people playing uh cards like evenly matched or lightning storm or heavy obviously like harpy's feather duster and stuff like that versus all these back row decks and a back row decks out to any of those cards is usually uh imperial order or solemn judgment so they kind of have to side in those cards because they know they're going to see those cards against them games two and three well that's not really a counterpoint that's just that's a that's cause and effect that's like if you're getting shot at at work all the time you should probably wear some body armor like that's just kind of what happens if people's if you're guaranteed like this is the problem with people who aren't trendsetters and people who can't think out of the box they will play what they see is finding success without knowing exactly why and will never innovate they'll just copy it so what happens is some players will just start taking advantage of those that are less experienced with deck building and they will capitalize it by playing cards to beat those specific cards because if you can if you can play into what you know classic net deckers will are trending towards then you can punish them so badly perfect example is look at that guy who won with uh guru he was siding Starley Road just yep. because it was so almost guaranteed that everyone's going to hit him with Lightning Storm. So I think it's more so just that when every single side deck is guaranteed to have some kind of blowout spell and trap based removal, then Solemn Judgment will always be the correct side choice if you have something to protect. That kind of like goes into the other type of card that I was... Um, wanted to talk about just kind of like counter side deck cards. Um, they're just mostly the cards that you're putting in because you know this is what people are going to be playing because they're commonly played sides. Like Cody said, Solemn Judgment, for example. Uh, I know in my like shit all trap dart, like my shit all trap deck games, game ones, I'm not generally going to be expecting something like a Harpy's Feather Duster or a Lightning Storm because those are very very commonly cited cards so i don't have to put the i don't have to put my outs to these blowouts in my main board but when i know that game two and three if i'm going first they're definitely going to be putting in these crazy blowout cards that will just wreck my entire back row i'm going to have solemn judgment there as my sided out to those cards just so it's my way of just kind of like protecting my own ass against what I know people are going to be siding against me. I'm totally not oh. talking to Aaron in the background. I so like I'm good at this. <laughs> um, 
Uh, so yeah, it, you're gonna have to give me the TLDR on what you just said. Uh, well, I was just, I was just like, was this, I was just kind of uh, like adding on to like what you were saying, reiterating it pretty much. Okay. So yeah. Yeah, it's like, yeah. So yeah, the basic TLDR for those who just drowned me out. Uh, yeah, very focused side deck specific toolbox cards and like what Jordan was talking about. It's not necessarily a counterpoint, but the result of when everyone's doing that, you can also side for, you know, dealing with those threats. And also when you're building your main deck, quite often you'll find yourself coming into the typical meta trend of, I need to play X amount of cards for if I lose the die roll and I don't have the choice, right? Because if everyone could always choose to go first, they would just build their deck to be so perfectly optimal that they don't have to play any going second options. That's not the case. So you're playing so many hand traps or you're playing a heavy line of just traditional traps, whatever it may be. You're usually accommodating your deck list in some manner to go second when you're not just super lucky. Uh, when you are side decking though, you're usually clued in on at least, what, four to five times? Four to five matches, you're pretty clued in on if you're going to go first or second while you're sideboarding. Yeah. Uh, that's when you can side accordingly, just for that, right? Because obviously when you're side decking, you need very, very specific matchup uh, hate. But at the same time, if you have the room for it in your side deck, why would you not also have a couple cards that you can take out some of that wide range, that wide utility, take some of that out, and then put in some of those very strong, going first, only good cards? And that's where you see cards like Saul and Judgment come in. Yeah. That's and on the counter side, like... I was going to say, that's also where you see cards like... Um, if you're not main decking them, a lot of floodgates, such as like you were saying, uh, Nick earlier, Imperial Order, or even cards like Anti Spell or Summon, Summon Limit's a good one. Yeah, Summon Limit's a really good one yeah. right now. And then on the other hand, if you know for a fact you're going to be going second, now you can add in like these blowout hand traps. You can do add things like generically good go second cards, like again Harpy's Feather Duster, or a better example would probably be. Uh, Banner Wrestler Panker Tops. Easily one of the best go second cards in the game, but if you draw it going first, it's almost useless. So kind of with what uh, Cody was talking about with like tailoring your side deck to be kind of a sniper rifle against decks you're planning on playing against, it kind of leads into like my uh what I'm calling like the mentality behind side decking. There's like kind of, uh, like Cody kind of alluded to. There's a lot of thought that goes into what you're going to be siding, how you're going to be siding, like even why you're going to be siding. Right. For example, like again with my Shadal trap deck, a lot of the time, a lot of my traps are generically very good and very powerful. So my side decking mentality is I'm going to be putting in maybe a set of hand traps that act as a blowout towards whatever I'm playing against, as well as 
my counter side cards like Solemn Judgment to defend against things like Harpy's Feather Duster and the Lightning Storm. And this kind of differs from how I side deck with VW, where I'm not really worried so much as to what my opponent will be siding against me. Because they're very hard cards to kind of deal with things like Artifact Lancia. Their only real out to it is going to be Called by the Grave, which is at one right now. So I have my VW side deck built as kind of, like Cody said, a sniper rifle against other decks where I'm playing cards like Lancia for VW, Cycle Reader for Drytron specifically. Um, for back row decks, I'm playing Danko Seca instead of Lightning Storm just because I'm worried about kind of dumb cards like Starlight Road and I don't use my normal summon. Uh, stuff like that. Actually, like what uh, you were just talking about, it kind of leads me to another point mm -hmm. that I see a lot. Um, a bad habit people will kind of screw themselves over with a lot is we'll use the uh, Cycle Reader as an example. People obviously can read Cycle Reader. It does exactly what you want in the Drytron matchup. I don't have to tell you why that's good. Now, the issue comes when you're building your side deck and you have 3 out of 15 dedicated to specifically Drytron already and you need to accommodate you only have 12 slots left you need to deal with a lot of the meta and right now a portion of the meta a large enough percentage is Eldlich so you will traditionally want to side something for that when you're siding we're going to talk about later the amount you should be siding without ruining the consistency of your main deck because like there's a whole issue with screwing over how your deck functions if you overside. But more importantly, yep. when you're side decking a card like Cycle Reader already, you're going to be tempted to side Cycle Reader in against Eldlich as well, just because there is a little bit of an overlap. But the problem with doing that is you are, no matter what, ruining the consistency of your main deck somewhat by side decking right you're changing how you built your deck now you're accommodating blowout cards so you're not necessarily ruining consistency but you're like you're trading the power level of your main deck strategy for just absolute blowouts whereas just because there is a little interaction and a little bit of overlap for cycle reader against something like eldritch doesn't necessarily mean that's correct because I guarantee you a lot of people who are listening to this now already side a card like Cycle Reader and have fallen victim to side decking in Cycle Reader against Eldlich and losing those games. Because it just doesn't do enough, but they get baited into thinking it will because it, in theory, does enough. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's a big, yep. that's a big issue that people will not account their losses to that. If people spent more time trying to think critically about their play and about their deck list, they would then e more easily attribute like why they lost to certain things, and that's uh, that's that's like a huge red flag. People don't seem to like acknowledge. So I just want to ask you then, Cody, because there's uh, certain scenarios that I can think of on the top of my head where you 
regardless of like the consistency factor and stuff like that, sometimes there are just cards in your main board that do absolutely nothing against the matchup you're playing against. And their card in your side deck has that minor overlap. What like do you still try and like would you still try like side them out? Uh side out whatever you can do anything for those cards that have a minor overlap just in case or Oh, like in that based off the way you worded that, it's a no brainer, yeah. yes, right? But yeah. I feel like you would need to kind of elaborate a little bit because that's kind of the issue and one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast is people will just ignore the gray area of everything and just say yes or no and that's it and not put in no more thought into it. Okay. How would you yeah. like me to elaborate? So you said there's a card in your deck that does nothing in the matchup. Yeah. Or, okay, I guess in a situation, either nothing or even, even like, has, like, a, let's say, like, a 40% uh, power, whereas the side deck card has, like, a 50% power type deal. If you could, if you could attribute random arbitrary numbers, and you could literally quantify this card is five percent better in this matchup, then obviously you just play to the numbers, right? But, and we don't have that kind of like user interface that tells us this card is five percent better in this in this way. So like, I think it's more so of a case by case basis, and you need to use some kind of critical thinking skills. So like, a better example is. If you're playing against a control strategy and your side deck has a lot of anti-combo hate, for example, if you're playing against Guru, right? Yeah. Not a very common strategy, but you're already main decking Ice Dragon's Prison. Do you keep it in? Because they're not going to play into Ice Dragon's Prison unless there's a very specific line of play that has to resolve. But your side deck has... Fuck, I don't know even what a good example would be in that matchup. But, like, I'm trying to think of a... I'm kind of talking myself into a corner here, but you see what I'm getting at, right? Like, Yeah, no, exactly. Like, obviously, you would probably want to take the IDP out and then play into another situation, like, maybe Gamma. Like, you you side in Gammas if that's a side option already, and then, like, you're just hoping Mm -hmm. that the Gammas are just slightly more live and that they don't have Fiendus. Right, like that's. I guess that's the closest parallel, but that's kind of like the point. Is I want people to think about the what and the why, as opposed to just saying, "Oh, this card is not good in this matchup, and this card is slightly better." Right, like why and what. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, like I find a lot of times when you're building your side deck, when you're preparing for like major events or even just like a local event, even um, if you put the time and effort into it, a lot of times, what well, or at least what I do is I'll sit down and I'll look at the cards that I want to put in my side deck and I'll take a look at what matchup I'm going to see a lot of, like, say, like, in this in point now, we're seeing, what, Drytron, we're seeing BW, we're seeing the Elblitch, like, all those back row decks, right? I'll take a look at my main deck and I'll be like, okay, what cards do I take out for the cards I want to put in? And I'll kind of do that and I'll have, like, a kind of a flow chart in my head of what I want to do. But I know that's not always going to work because there are going to be certain matchups, like those rogue matchups that you don't plan for. And I guess that's where like what you're saying right now is people kind of need to have that critical thinking yep. where you don't have that flow chart in your head for what that deck's going to do. Because sometimes there's just a deck that comes out of nowhere, right? And you're like, oh, I didn't prepare for this. Well, obviously you weren't going to, right? So that's why you got to think, hey, 
what cards in my side deck are going to be um, good for me to play now. Sometimes you're going to end up in a situation where your main deck is just good enough. Yeah. And you don't need to really... Yeah, yeah. So you're kind of... That's one thing another a lot of people don't seem to do as well, or do enough as well, is just have faith in their deck list. Like, so many people are gonna are so willing to butcher eight or nine cards out of their main deck, like, closer to ten cards, when if you were that, like, if you were lacking that much confidence in your main deck, then there was an issue from the deck-building standpoint, right from the get-go. Yeah. And you shouldn't be butchering your deck in that way. Like, I'm gonna pull out right now what my side deck is that I have for my current deck. And like Mm -hmm. one thing that you were talking about just now is something to elaborate on where you are going to face rogue strategies or more importantly, some kind of strategy that you just can't focus on exactly like very precisely. Obviously if you're playing as Drytron, VW, Eldritch, you know what you want in that matchup. So you have cards dedicated to that, but like what do you do when you're playing against a guru deck? Because you don't want to side specifically for Guru, but at the same time, you do need to respect the fact that Rogue decks exist to some manner, and that's where I think you can kind of go back a little bit on that approach where you can play very specific hate, and you play Mm -hmm. hate that does what you want it to in that situation, but more so you dial back the power a little bit for just its utility and its, its... it's wide range of what you can use it against. So, so a card, uh, like okay. like what you were saying there, a card I or cards in general, I think do a really good job for this are just kaiju's. Uh, I would say yes, but that's that's meta dependent because kaiju's okay. will yeah. always be the king of. I just don't want to deal with your shit, and I'm willing to minus one to not have to deal with your shit. So that's what kaiju's have. Always I think I think a better. I think a better example of that kind of like slightly lower power level, but still a very good card in a matchup would be something like Pancratops. Uh, no. Like specific. No? Like Pancratops is just very overall utility good, but I'm talking about more like Lightning Storm. Because Lightning Storm is very strong in that what it does is it's just, it's like a blanket answer to back row, but like it's not a very good targeted out to like Eldritch because when you Lightning Storm an Eldritch back row, you don't really accomplish too much usually, right? Like they still have a lot of hand traps and their spells and traps are just going to float. So Lightning Storm isn't always just a catch-all out. Uh, But like if you're playing against Eldritch, you would always, always rather have Cosmic Cyclone. And that's a very narrow hate on Eldritch. The trade-off being I'm playing Lightning Storm as my option because I'm dialing back that power a little bit. But now my reaches, I get to hate on every back row deck instead of trying to play the one for one trade removal game against like a control deck. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, another example of something like that is uh, Dark Ruler No More. Uh, this card is one of the best side deck cards that has ever been printed solely because. Rogue strategies from here on ever will always have to deal with the fact that no matter how stupid your board is, at least Dark Ruler answers it sometimes. You know, or like it will always just be that check, and that's what makes it so good. Obviously, Dark Ruler is not as good as like Forbidden Droplets against VFD and you know other 
interactions and like dark ruler just sometimes won't get you there but more often than not dark ruler is just the catch-all out to monster effects and bullshit floodgates like in monster form uh another thing that is really is a consistent thing that every rogue strategy tends to do now outside of like con random control strategies something that every degenerate rogue strategy does now is they utilize like an immense amount of searching so i think draw and lockbird needs to exist in some manner in your main or side because some decks will just search 15 times in a turn and you need to keep yep. those decks in check uh perfect examples so i'm playing that stupid earth or dozer control deck right now mm -hmm. and the only card that will consistently beat that deck is uh drone lockbird so there's a lot Excellent. of decks that exist in that manner where they go search into search into search into search yeah. into search and you need stuff like Droll to keep those decks playing fair. Mermil's another good example of that. Yeah, Mermil was like one of the very first offenders of that where they just search yes, so was. much. And a lot of newer decks play on a similar axis that as Mermil's. Like I still say Drytron's just Mermil's 2.0. Yes. But uh yeah. Yeah, like they you need to kind of respect those decks enough to like at least have something prepared for them or just have such confidence in your main board that you don't have to worry about them just because your deck is just on that much higher of a power level. But that's a whole different conversation. Yeah, I think a big thing with a lot of players is them kind of not recognizing the fact that their deck can be good enough in a certain matchup just because of like let's say the power level of the deck compared to the one they're playing against um like you have to be aware of the fact like you don't have to side against a deck if your deck's already gonna if you already know your deck's gonna win and you're confident enough like you can't be afraid of not siding I'm going to be honest with you. I never thought that was a thing. Being afraid of not signing. Oh, there's some like I know players who it's like they side for the sake of they want to be able to put like uh, switching cards because like they're afraid of something. Like, don't get me wrong. I'll I'll fake side sometimes if I know that my matchup is going to be fine anyways. Yeah, I'll like, put in cards but just take them right out yeah, just to kind of psych my opponent out, out a bit. So. Like that's a whole other thing. Yeah, I was gonna say fake siding something completely like that ghost siding or however whatever name it's been given these days. Um No, I'd I guess it's just for me in any case, like thinking about think about the matchup, think about what you saw, think about um what that deck does. Like if you know if you have the burden of knowledge, obviously, to know what decks do, then you're already one step ahead. Um and I, that's huge for side decking. Uh, that's also then, the reason why I I will never play whatever is like the cookie cutter best deck. Like I yeah. always have some kind of variation to it just because I am the biggest advocate for if I know what your deck is and what it's trying to do and you don't know mine, I already have a higher chance to win this game. No matter absolutely. if it's yours is tier one and mine's tier three. Yep. But yeah, I know. Like, think, thinking about like the cards that 
that you expect to see, even like cards that you expect to see sided in against you, right? Mm-hmm. Take that into consideration and then look at your side deck, look at your main deck, or think about what you have and like, okay, well, what do I have that'll be my best option here and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Uh, that I that, that I feel like that goes without saying, but I guess there are some people that do just like, oh, I need I I hundred percent sure I need this. In reality, they probably didn't. So, yeah, th- there's a good example of like just playing out situations in your head of why a card might actually be better than not. Right? Like you read a card like Dark Ruler No More, and it just screams like a catch-all answer to Monster Floodgates. But you play it out against VW, and almost every situation, it doesn't do anything, right? So, the realistic side is, like, you have to find a different out, if that's the kind of method you want to take. Uh, A good example right now is, I'm playing an Earth Machine deck. A lot of decks will play Droll, Lockbird, and Gamma, but I am way more likely to see an anti or a side deck card that deals with searching uh in games two and three just because like droll is a much more commonly sided card as opposed to main right now so if i'm more likely to see those cards then i can side deck something like cyframe gamma which is traditionally like a going first card in vw but i can side it because I have the overlap of no matter what, every matchup going second, Gamma does enough. But when I'm going first, I can bring this in because my deck does play like seven plus cards that can force out a Gamma or force out a hand trap before I have monsters on field. So it gives enough overlap that I can bring it in as hate every time. And then also use it as like an insulation to my plays when I'm going yeah. first. Yeah, I remember when I was prepping um, my Medulce list for a regional, and I was adamant that Gamma was a terrible card for the deck because I, majority of time or not, didn't have a like I had a monster on board, and I remember you kind of like. You did that thing where you, you you played the scenario in your head, right? And you're just like, how many cards do you have in your deck where you play it and it kind of baits out a hand trap and you wouldn't have a monster on the field? And we actually looked and there was like, gosh, I want to say um, at least six, if not more. Mm-hmm. And each one of them was like a start to my combo that you would expect a hand trap and a hand trap would hurt it if it got hit. It was like, why aren't you playing Gamma then? And I'm just like, okay, well, I'll try it. And it ended up being so huge. I think that's the kind of... That's the kind of, like, overlap you get when you're dealing with something that's, like, good enough in one situation, but then also does enough in another situation to warrant a slot. Even though it's not, like, super hyper-specific. Which is, like, my... That's my big thing for side deck, is, like, if you can cater cards in your deck to be for this very moment why would you not pick the most toxic hateful thing you can pick and that's the point of a side deck and that's one of the reasons why the, it, there's so much skill involved because you can build your deck 
and say, you know, blah, 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 A, B, or C is why I lost. But you can never say my side deck wasn't correct without it being pilot error. If your side deck was not correct, you did not prepare correctly. And that's why you will never hear a good player say, I didn't build my side deck correctly, unless he got caught off guard by some random rogue option that took yeah. the tournament by storm. For example, like when VW or Drytron first came into the meta, people weren't side decking correctly. That is no. improper side deck, but it's it's still user error, but it or pilot error, but it's more so that they just didn't appreciate this deck before it was shown to them. And like if yeah. you're not ready for new meta strategies that are gonna catch on, that this is like ninety nine percent of the player base, but like that's that's still pilot error. Mm-hmm. So do either of you have any sort of like thoughts on siding versus like on siding against combo versus siding against control decks? Like let's say siding against Drytron versus siding against something like Guru. Um, do you guys usually have like a different kind of thought process on how to side against them or is it more um... Just whatever blowouts you want. <laughs> so like it's kind of like blowouts, but at the same time, it also depends on what you're playing, right? Um, right now, we're as far as I know. You can correct me if I'm wrong. We're very much in a meta where uh, hand traps are what you want to see, um, because there are too many times where the boards that you're going to see at the end of your opponent's turn are just too strong. Um, yeah. And there's no card you can play really that'll just deal with that board. So you kind of want to have preventative measures instead of having cards that just take care of the problem. Um, but that's not always going to be the case for all the metas. Some metas you might want to just see cards that, you know, you have a problem on the board. And I'm just going to play a card that instead of like preventing you from playing that problem... I'm going to wait for you to bring out the problem and then deal with it then. Um, I, I got to cut you off just because like that's sure. such an important thing in Yu-Gi-Oh! Yeah. That, again, people don't talk about enough. The difference between preemptive and reactive cards, right? Like, yeah. the obvious thing is a hand trap to negate the issue or something that limits your opponent's ability to do something. Or a card that deals with the problem after it was done. Mm -hmm. uh, I, If you guys remember that uh, Orcust board break deck I played, yeah, it was famously a going second deck that featured zero hand traps. So, like, that's an oxymoron, usually. Going second deck, zero hand traps. Doesn't make sense. But the whole point behind it was, when I played that deck, we hit critical mass of going second options that let me just say, I don't care what you do, I will have so many good reactive cards that I will win because I I have perfect knowledge of what you have because you played out your turn. You don't have perfect knowledge of what I have, so I can play out my turn better than you theoretically can. And if I play just good enough with my perfect option reactive cards, I'll win. So that's why cards like Kaijus are just so good. They just are a catch-all. I don't care what you do screw you this one card right this hard minus one i win this this trade uh 
again, matchup specific because right now no one's citing kaijus because the thing that you really want to kaiju is a wind barrier statue or a uh, vanity ruler. So like yep. realistically, you're only citing kaijus for one thing, and you're well, only I mean, like, using about... it against like the one barrier statue. But red eyes dark dragoon though. Yeah, that's that's a bit different. So like in that specific situation would you rather not have in both situations dark ruler no more to a degree yes but i mean that's also situational with the deck itself say your deck has this really high potential of um breaking through a board and killing your opponent but but i mean like there's like slight vulnerabilities and then Sometimes just being able to kaiju out that Dragoons or kaiju out that barrier statue is enough. Right now, I'm, I, like obviously, like I would think Dark Ruler is still like the better option if you can go Dark Ruler and then kind of clear their board because you don't have to worry about their monster effects on board anymore and then you can make your own unbreakable board to deal with. Yeah. But... Um, what what about those situations where, say, your deck just needed to like get that one piece off the board and then they can keep going? I would agree if there was, if all those decks were just that one piece. Bird up doesn't end on just the wind barrier statue, and mm -hmm. dragoon decks don't have just dragoon more often than not, and more importantly, drytron doesn't have just you know vanity ruler, so. It's it's more of a like meta by meta approach you gotta take. Like if kaiju's are enough, then obviously you take the kaiju. But our current meta trends towards dark ruler. Dark ruler just outing boards of just ignorant monsters. Like, you know we have, uh, the apex avian link rebo Appaloosa, right? Like those boards are realistic bird up boards. Dark yeah. ruler beats the whole thing. A yep. kaiju won it. Yeah. So that's kind of why I'm trending towards Dark Ruler just being the catch-all. I don't care what your monster effect is. I need to play Dark Ruler. Uh, yeah. A similar approach is Lightning Storm, right? Mm -hmm. You could play uh, whatever preemptive hand trap you have. Like, let's say a Ghost Ogre, for example, or whatever other mechanism you have yeah. that prevents your opponent from setting up their ignorant back row. But... Lightning Storm just says, I deal with the back row, right? Like, it's just is good enough yeah. in that manner. Uh, you kind of need to weigh your options and understand that if you're playing cards that are reactive, you will always have the advantage of seeing your sixth card. Because if you're seeing the sixth card off the top is a uh, an Ash Blossom, that obviously sucks, right? Like, drawing a hand trap oh, yeah. for a turn sucks. But if you draw for your turn yeah. a Lightning Storm, you're like, oh, fuck yeah, that was a good card to draw for my turn. Um, so, reactive cards always have the benefit of just being beneficial to draw when you're on the draw. Mm -hmm. uh, problem being is, if you're side-decking only reactive cards, then they usually aren't seeing play when you're going first. Because, like, if you're side-decking Lancia, for example, you can just put those in, going first or second. Mm -hmm. So, reactive options like that are 
versatile in the fact that you can play him going first or second. So does that make it all of a sudden more valuable than the reactive option? See what I mean? Yes. A thousand percent yes. Well, like, in that case, I would agree with you. But, like, the problem with deck building and people in general is they're willing to just say yes a thousand percent without thinking about it. Well, I mean, like you were saying about in that situation, right? Obviously, there are other situations um, where that might not always be the case. Um, but I think that, like, that stems back towards what we were saying before is, sure, you can play a card like that that'll cater to going first or second but what if your deck is already well suited to go first and then you just wanted a going second card for that matchup right wait what <laughs> say that what again? you mean what <laughs> i was saying like say we like you can play a card in your side deck that caters to going first or second but what if your deck is already catered to going first and you just need a card that does well going second against that matchup I feel like if, uh, I guess that's a case by case thing again. But like more often than not, if you have the option to pick something that's slightly more optimal in some way, then you're gonna take that route. But it depends on the exact case. Yeah, well, that's uh, what I mean. It, it's it's case by like like you said, it's case by case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Yeah, like, I, I think right now, uh, one issue with Yu-Gi-Oh! in general is that the tools that we have, we're hitting, like, this critical mass of, like, the going first decks and going first strategies are just so freaking good that to compensate for them, we have going second options that are just insane. So... A lot of side decking is actually like kind of building itself right now, and I feel like a lot of the skill expression in Yu-Gi-Oh is kind of being taken away. When every side deck will feature, you know, you this is true of like every format, but like it, yeah. it's really bad right now when you have cards at the power level of Lightning Storm, and even Drone Lockbird, because I think Drone Lockbird is kind of unhealthy. Um, well, it's like. I was gonna say, like we probably like between me and you playing completely different decks, our side decks are probably gonna look maybe like sixty to seventy five percent the same. Yeah, and uh, I've said this before, where like if I'm gonna take a tournament seriously, and people are gonna join are gonna go into that tournament, and you're gonna spend a lot of time and money to do it, I would be hard-pressed to not force who I go with to play the same thing as me. And that doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily mean I have a big enough ego where they have to play what I'm playing. I could change what I'm playing to be what they're playing. Because if they are of sound mind and good reasoning for why they're playing their option, then that means they have a better grasp of the meta than me. So I should play their option. If everyone had that same approach and was very, like min maxing about it everyone's side deck would look the same but we're not getting to that because people are min maxing people are just throwing in catch-all answers with zero thought behind it in their side deck so yep. like nick said like he's probably siding lightning storms most decks that can put out 8,000 lethal are going to play red reboots um yep. lancia is probably in a side deck uh, mm -hmm. uh cycle reader probably in a side deck 
So, yeah. like, right yep. from the get-go, we're looking at, you know, we're looking at 9 out of 15 slots being prop 9 to 10 cards, probably being the same card. Uh, if he's not playing a full suite of Lightning Storm, he's maybe playing a Harpy's Feather Duster on the side. Again, like, kind of redundant, but, like, all of these options are just at hitting this point of just being so ridiculously strong that there's no real thought that goes into it, and you kind of just have to play it because it's it's so fucking strong. Yeah, like, again, in my case with VW, the only reason I have some weird tech cards in my deck is just the nature of how my deck operates, where I can play Beatrice in my deck, giving me access to cards like Orcus Crescendo and Mischief of the Gnomes, which in themselves can be blowed cards against Drytron and VW, respectively. Um, so, like, that's the only reason I get to play these kind of, like, super powerful cards, because I have access to Beatrice. That's actually, yeah. uh... Those are specific. Yeah, I'm gonna spe yeah. Uh, segue that into another thing people don't do enough. Uh, tailoring your side deck to your main deck's mm -hmm. strengths. So, like, what Nick was talking about, right? His deck can dump Orcus Crescendo, which then sets up certain things, right? He, he can play into that, that line. Which is awesome. That's what you should be doing. But like, when I was playing, uh, when I was playing, I won one or two tournaments with this invoked Mech Knight list way back when, before it was like super standard, before we had all these crazy Mech Knight tools. And back then, I side decked one Red Moon, uh, and didn't main deck it. Right. The idea was, uh, the Mech Knight Red Moon. Or was it Moon? Regardless, you guys know what I'm talking about. It's the one that you banish from the grave yeah, and you yeah. pop the monster in the same column. Uh, the reason why I side-decked it was if I'm going against a certain matchup where I need that kind of removal, I can search it by nature of how the Mech Knights work, right? So I just need to side-deck one slot. So I'm side-decking a toolbox card that only my deck gives me the option to do. And not a lot of people are doing that. Nick is because he could do that Beatrice Dub Crescendo play. A lot of people don't look at what uh, toolbox their deck can bring in from the side deck, and they're just playing cookie cutter side deck options. Right? Like I got to imagine there's a lot of Sea Serpent and other water support that Mermails could be playing right now, that they could be side specifically. Uh, I play a Pike in my side deck because in my main deck I play Abyssmander as my search target for Tias. Okay. But that's just because doing that lets you play a uh, fourth. In VFD, if you draw a TS Goons, it's a fourth seven VFD. Uh, that VFD is not good against certain back row decks. So why would I keep something that's not good enough for them in my main deck when I can bring in the Pike and then go more tailored into a Bahama Shark Toad play, which is good against those matchups, right? So uh, there are other options, like you said, like I can play cards like. Uh, I don't play Marksman at all in my main deck, and I still to this day don't like that card just because a lot of the back row that we deal with today are just so reactive already. Like, I'll do Marksman, and then my I guess it could force my opponent to play a card outside of when they want to, but it's still not ideal. I don't know. I still think within reason. I think 
in in Mermills, I would almost always find a room for a marksman or uh, infantry in the side deck somewhere. Because well, just, I, I already main deck like two infantry, right? And so yeah, that's three, that's so. kind of a moot point. But like you get what I'm getting yeah. at. I I yeah, would exactly. try to find room for that card because your deck can play into that line very easily. So nope. that's why nope. I would try to nope. put room for that. Um, I'm trying to think of another deck that has similar deck building theory. Well, like, like, go ahead. I was gonna say, like, I, I'm not as well versed in it as like somebody like our friend Rafi, but like Drytron, the bent on searching any fairy, the like, for me that opens up a lot of different avenues with your side deck that maybe weren't options before, like playing something like purple light in yep, your side deck exactly. for your trap card matchups, yep. right? Nobody's doing that, even though like you have a tailor made um out to back row decks in purple light that you could be replacing orange lights, which might be a dead card in that matchup for for like these live cards that could prevent things like a torrential tribute or like a Tikaboo or something like that. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah, that's exactly that's like the perfect point for like a typical tier one strategy right now that does that exact side decking thing I was talking about where they side yep. Herald of Purple for those matchups. That's one thing that I actually liked about Drytron a lot too is uh, some people forget that Lancia happens to be a light fairy. Yep. And you can, you don't have to max out uh, Lancia in your side. Like, obviously, like you're going second against those matchups, you kind of want to still, too, because you want to be able to see it. But I mean, like, when you're going first against those matchups, you can side in one and you can tutor it and then have that as your out later on, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. like in my deck, to consider, yeah, there, that's like always the big thing, right? You have to think about how your main deck can interact with your side. Like, you always have to think about how your main deck interacts with your side. and like i'm being a dead horse by talking about vw so much but like you have to look at cards like chow fang that lets you like if you have the means to pop it with your chuche on your turn and you don't need that search for like your lao lao or something if you're in game two and three cycle reader is a tuner you can search cycle reader with chow fang like giving you so much more access to like this blowout hand trap against Drytron. Because like between having the three copies of that, the Cycle Reader and the Chow Fang, that's five different ways that I can search or I can have Cycle Reader in my hand. Making it like such a powerful option for me in that match in that specific Drytron matchup. Not counting mm-hmm. like the foolish burial goods, crescendo. Yeah, the like, DM exactly. so many cards that deck plays that just kinda like lets you go into certain avenues to get to that endpoint. Yeah. And again, like that's me looking at my deck's interaction with my side deck. Like I know that this card is that powerful. So I've now maxed out on my means of getting to this card Mm -hmm. just through my deck's interactions with it. And like, that's also something that I saw that when I was looking at your side deck too, was, um, uh, that helps with like going first strategies. Sometimes some going first decks have to play a three of a certain card to kind of make it worth doing so, right? And mm-hmm. that kind of like takes away from being able to side deck other cards. 
VW has that option where they can side deck certain one of like I think you were siding one of Mischief of the Gnome, correct? Yep. And like they can do stuff like that because they already have main deck ways of getting that card where they want it. So why would they need to play more? Yeah. Even with the cycle reader, like going first, I now have the option of siding that card in going first in like in matchups that I need to. Mm-hmm. But I don't have to max out on how many copies I have because well, naturally, with Lance, yeah. yeah, like naturally playing through my combo, I have the means to get a cycle reader to my hand going first, so that I have it as a second layer of uh, interruption against my opponent. But if I'm going second, I still want those three copies because at that point I just have to maximize like raw opening that card. Mm-hmm. This uh, this kind of goes hand in hand with how you build your main deck. Mm-hmm. Like I've said time and time again, side deck is way more important. But like you can do yourself a big favor by catering your main deck to have better side deck options, right? Like when you're choosing between uh different options in VW, I don't know if it's ever in some random variation not correct to play Foolish Warrior Goods. I'm assuming it's pretty standard. But like, just to humor me, let's say it's not in some versions. Uh, If you didn't, then that limits your side decking option because you cannot now side deck one copy of like Orcus Crescendo and consistently hit it. Uh, A good parallel, something to like compare that to is back in Necros format, back when we had Dijinlock, uh, you could what was a common card that people would either main or side is they would main or side some variation of DD warrior lady just out Jin. And the reason they could do that and they would only play one copy is because Rhoda was at three back then. So it's the same thing. You're just catering your main deck strategy to have the ability to like deal with an out because you're doing yourself a favor and setting yourself up to deal with these threats. So that's like a big important thing when you're building your main deck. If you're side decking something like Cycle Reader, then hey, maybe I set up a Chow Fang in my extra deck that I wouldn't use too often, but when I do, I can either search one of my VW tuners or now I can also do the Cycle Reader. I find it yep. so amazing that a card like DD Warrior Lady that's printed so long ago and uh, to this point in time has probably already like been power crap so hard but at that point in time should have been power crap but still had some kind of niche small niche it's funny there was actually there was like a back in that format going into nats i remember there was like a big debate in the necros community what was the tip what was the appropriate option because there was three warriors you would you could play in that slot your anti-gen card it was either dd warrior lady bull blader i think it was called or yeah. yes Bull was the one i saw yeah yeah so all of them lost to something but dd warrior lady was the only one that lost to only valk whereas the other ones could lose to gungnir or uh in the case of exile force it lost to gungnir and trish but yeah, yeah. like those are like th- that's an example of dd warrior lady just being good in that that exact niche enough thing that it got dug out from the depths of 2005. Yeah. Like, just 
it's kind of like Jordan was saying, where like this one card that was definitely power crept kind of came back. It like there's probably a whole episode in itself, but it kind of highlights like one of the nice parts about Yu-Gi-Oh. Like I know this game gets flack for a lot of stupid things, but the fact that like we can have all these old cards come back for super niche situations uh, randomly, like Yeti Warrior Lady, where in a game like Magic where they have rotating sets for standard or Pokemon where like their game just is constantly rotating. A lot of the times, some of these older cards are just useless because you can't play them anymore. Where in Yu-Gi-Oh! it's like, oh, this random MRD card is good in this niche situation. Awesome. Now I can play it. That's uh, well, I mean, one of the reasons why in the Yu-Gi-Oh! Stonks episode, I was... Uh, constantly referencing future proofing cards because a yep. lot of cards printed 15 plus years ago just weren't printed with the idea that 15 years later there would be just an excess of you know set releases that we gotta print something new so like like Jordan was saying like he's surprised that a card like DD Warrior Lady would find its way back into a meta deck after so long but when you have cards printed back then that were just so like unrestrictive on what they did and just were so very good at one thing mm -hmm. at some point there would be enough of an overlap with something that that was exactly what you needed like snake rain is the fucking meme but that's a perfect example they will never print any yeah. kind of reptile strategy that doesn't involve the graveyard in some minor way that's not going to force snake rain to immediately be relevant i'm trying to think of yeah. right now off the top of my head a card that is not like future proofed but uh here i'll hit you with an example some cody spice okay might never matter probably will never come <laughs> up but in a year when this becomes part of a tier one strategy you'll be like wait i heard cody talk about that one time there will at some point at least in cody's mind there will one point be a time where chaos space searching Orbital Hydralander will be the correct play because Orbital Hydralander is one of the most ignorant broken cards to ever be printed. There's just not been a meta strategy to accommodate it. And going into yep. Drytron's release, the deck I was theorycrafting and I spent probably too much time on was a Drytron Cyber Dragon deck list where the whole gimmick was I played one of everything because Drytron can functionally play with one of everyone. I played it where the idea was I chaos space the Drytron's out of my hand to search Orbital Hydralander. And then I do full Cyber Dragon Drytron garbage and then end the combo with Orbital Hydralander protecting something. <laughs> so, like, there's cards that exist. If you look at some random garbage card in some rogue strategy that we'll never see play, just think about it for a second and be like, wow. That card's really freaking good in a bad archetype. <laughs> there's going to be a point when there's a critical mass of just too much overlap and too much synergy where it becomes an yeah. insane card. Like, I have freaking Buster Dragon and the Buster Blader Fusion. I'm like, these cards are so insane if you can get them both out. What do you know? They get their stupid Prologue of the Destruction Swordsman printed. Boom. That's the critical mass I'm talking about. All of a sudden, Buster Blader goes from tier five to a tier two strategy. Uh, well, I, like, 
I think the most recent one for that right now is going to be like those Christian cards that are all shooting up in price. Like, Citrate doesn't really do anything other than the fact that it's a water tuner, and it fits super well in like the meme ice barrier deck now. Well, actually, when I was looking at that, because I actually had to look into that today, the Citrate idea that people are playing it is not only just because it's a water uh, tuner for the deck, but also it's a card that they can end on. And then on the following turn, it helps them make a disruption like Trish or one of the other cards that they play. Let's say it's like it again. It's just random. Like a random old card is good because oh. of like what it is. Oh, another Yu-Gi-Oh stock mini segment here. If you ever want to make easy profit on Yu-Gi-Oh, look at whatever the next structure deck is and just buy support for it. That's not directly in the structure deck because the easiest way to make profit is you buy random structure deck support before it comes out and then it'll always every time no question go up 200 percent when the structure deck gets released my favorite example of that is i bought 20 copies of uh whatever that stupid spell was where you get to look at each other's hand and discard a card you guys know what i'm talking about drag down Drag down, yeah. I bought twenty copies of Drag Down before the Dark World structure deck came out for fifty cents each. Drag Down became a ten dollar common. <laughs> There's a reason for that. Yep. So like you guys can make you guys can pay for your product very easily using Yu-Gi-Oh! if you just pay attention to those little things. Think critically about it. Yeah. Anyways, back on topic. Um I think the next What's that? Stonks is always topic. Let's be real. So I think the most, the next most important part about side decking is going to be kind of what to side in and what to side out. Because I think this is a big issue that a lot of players will have where they are either over or under siding cards. Yeah. Um, and by that I mean like they'll be siding in too many cards versus siding like or siding in too few cards. Um, the big thing with this is there's a very fine balance between keeping your deck consistent and still on like track for whatever your strategy is, while also accommodating these kind of like huge power cards that for the most part don't really synergize with your deck but harm your opponent enough that they like lose a turn or lose the game outright i'm sure cody has a lot to say about this kind of topic so aaron's totally making me a like icon for my brand so i'm like totally like not being responsible about the podcast right now um okay sorry give me the tldr TLDR cards siding in a either too many or too little and how like the the, the proper ratios of okay. cards to side in and out depending on and also like what cards to take out for what matchup and cards to put in type card wise right yeah so got to kind of take that by point by point um obviously you yeah. can side too many you can side too little um I was a victim of that when I was playing Dragon Rulers when I went to 2013 Nats I sided. 12 out of 15 cards for spellbooks but that was because i made a <laughs> educated critical 
uh, decision to main deck specifically for the mirror, and then side deck specifically yep. for that matchup, because I knew that 90% of the meta was going to be those two decks, and mm. I wasn't wrong, so you, know, you yep. can say if I thought I was correct or not, but uh, uh, the too much thing is uh, definitely understated, because some people will side in 8 10 12 cards for a matchup and if you're doing that then there's just a fundamental flaw with your deck building uh i don't think there's a situation where that's almost ever correct unless you're talking about like uh you're side decking for mystic mine and you're like i need to just take out as much garbage that's not applicable in mystic mine for specifically cards that i can play you know what i mean but outside of like mm -hmm those weird niche situations i don't think it's ever correct to side too much and the reason for that is because you're just hindering your deck's strategy by yep. hitting so many of those cards um the counterpoint to that is decks like zoo eldlich one of their strengths is actually their ability to side or overside like that deck's deck building theory caters to that because they play uh <laughs> 13 Eldritch cards, they play upwards of 10 Zoo cards, and then you've got literally a third of the deck is Flex. Just so, open space. Yeah, so you can now play whatever answers to the meta are those slots, and then whatever side deck fills in those slots, and then it's like an interchangeable thing. Yep. Um, <laughs> you can always underside. That's always obvious, right? Like, if you're playing against a heavy control strategy and your side deck is a single Harpy's Feather Duster and then you lose to Floodgates, it, it was your fault. Like, you have to set yourself up for success. If you don't win because you didn't draw or see your outs or your combo, that's fair. That happens to literally everyone. But if you are playing three of combo A and a three of combo B... You realize you have like less than what is it? I think it's like a thirteen percent chance to see them together. Yeah. If your whole deck's rely, your whole deck's chance of success is reliant on a thirteen percent chance to do something, then you deserve to lose because you didn't you set yourself up for success. So that's why you do need to side appropriately for those degenerate kinds of decks, and that's why everyone's siding. Harpies and lightning storms and red rebounds, uh -huh. right? You need to have enough. Um, yeah. And then I go ahead. I was gonna say, like, for me, side decking, like, generally speaking, like, there's obviously the niche scenarios where I'm playing Zoo Eldritch and I can side a whole bunch of cards, or maybe I wasn't fully prepared for the matchup, so I can only side like three cards. But like, my general number is always between like five and seven purely based on like statistics where I'll have a high chance of seeing one of those like five to seven cards in my opening hand. Well, um, at least one of those cards. Yeah, like there's there's so much that goes into the, the odds yeah. and like yeah. Plot of Prosperity is so fucking good that it all of a sudden changes the dynamic of, the, of everything because now you're yeah. seeing 11 cards and not, you know, six or five or whatever. Um, yeah. There's so much that goes into it. Obviously, you can just blindly say, pick arbitrary number five to seven. Yeah, that's correct around that range. Um, the reason why that sounds right, 
without getting too deep into it is because you don't want to hit the consistency too bad. And one thing that players do too much is when they're playing cards like Upstar Goblin or Pot of Duality, Pot of Desires, Pick Your whatever, they will play consistency cards and then their side deck is, you know, five, six, seven cards. They will take out three consistency cards and three X other cards and then put in their six side deck and be like, perfect, good to go. Whereas if you're taking out consistency cards for side deck, that's almost never correct. Um, you're playing consistency cards for a reason, uh, especially cards that help you get to your side deck cards should never come out of your deck. Uh, mm. There's obviously a lot that goes into that. Like if your opponent is likely to bring in uh, Drone Lockbird or Anti-Spell Fragrance, you don't want to have a mitt full of spells, right, against something like that. So like there's, yep. again, the whole critical thinking skills. But like don't kill consistency cards and engines for side deck cards because then there's an issue with your deck building. Yeah, typically when I'm siding out my cards, I'm looking for the cards that are either going to least hinder my strategy when I take them out. So it's usually going to be cards that are redundant to my combos. Uh, I'm just going to use VW again as an example because like that's what I'm playing the most of right now. Um, I'll be taking out things like my second copy of Nyanan because typically that's going to be a card that while I don't mind opening it, I'm typically not wanting to see it in my opening hand, and I'm going to be dumping it anyways. Uh, dependent on the matchup or like what I'm siding against, I can take things out like Foolish Burial Goods because, again, it's a redundant search card for me. But, like Cody said, I want to be keeping in cards like Pot of Prosperity because not only is it a consistency card to help me get to my combo, it's going to be a consistency card that helps me get to my side deck cards. Let's say I'm playing against uh, Guru and I had to go second. If I opened combo, I don't want to play into three or four set cards. I want to play my Pot of Prosperity, Dave for Harpy's Feather Duster, blow them out, and then combo off. Yep. Um, Yeah. Like, I think the biggest takeaway from this episode in general is just how much thought needs to go into your side deck Mm -hmm. arguably i would say there's almost more thought going into a side deck than there is in your main deck like a lot of time with a main that's that's not arguable that is just fact like a lot of time with a main deck you can go and pick out a main deck from like anywhere you can change like some small things that you want to change but for the most part like a lot of decks are just kind what they are unless you're playing something completely off base or like out of nowhere like cody's earth machine deck like that deck requires a lot of thought to play and i'm sure it takes a lot of thought to build but when it comes to the side deck there's so many things to think about between what cards you're gonna play um your ratios of how you're gonna play them how those cards work with your deck what to take out of your deck, what to put into the deck. There's so, so many things. I gotta say, I gotta give credit, because I build almost every deck I build 
just off stupid deck theories I have. But this Earth Machine deck, like, there's actually just one guy who's basically, like, the pioneer of the strategy. And he's basically, like, the godfather of this archetype. Or, like, this deck strategy. This guy on uh, on YouTube, Aerosol TCG, he's... He built, like, the fundamental, like, 35-plus core of what this deck is. And I think every single person who plays Earth Machine credits the exact same guy for the deck and its strategies. So, like, <laughs> he's actually just, like, a god of this deck. And, uh, yeah, and, like, one thing you said, too, is, like, how difficult it is to play the deck. That's almost, like, a point in and of itself. People need to also take note of, like... When you're playing control strategies, combo decks, people will like to talk about how difficult it is to play decks. For the most part, you should know how to play your combo, but you should also should probably give yourself the best chances to win by not overcomplicating decks at the same time. Like, obviously, if a deck literally just says, play Floodgate A, go. Like, that's not really... There's no thought that goes into that. But... Yeah. Your deck strategy should not... You should set yourself up to not just lose to yourself so that you can use side deck cards to carry you in big blowouts. Like, you don't want to be playing a deck that's so fucking complicated that you saw your side deck blow, but it didn't matter because you played yourself into a hole. <laughs> so it's pretty important to play a deck that you can play. And that's not to say that people suck and can't play complicated decks just don't do yourself any you know don't screw yourself over by playing something so fucking complicated that you just lose to yourself yeah yeah like for example i know for a fact that my level of play drops significantly the more tired or that i get so like if i wake up one day and i'm feeling kind of like real shitty and tired all day, I don't think I'd be playing some crazy combo strategy where I have like five different lines of play with every, like different two card combos. I'd more than likely be taking Eldritch Zoo to that tournament because not that I can turn my brain off with it, but my lines of play are going to be a lot more and I don't have to worry about it as much. And that in and of itself just ups my chances of winning. If I don't have to, like, overcomplicate things. Yeah. There are certain decks you can play. Uh, like you said, like, Zoo Eldritch is actually a great example of a deck that kind of has the helmet effect to it, right? You put a helmet on, you go. It, um, it definitely caters to more of a style of play where you don't have to think out your plays all too much. The line of plays are pretty yeah. straightforward. Um. Whereas like um like Drytron or VW, they have uh line A go into line B and C and then B and C have like lines D through F or like X and Y and stuff like that. So Yeah, like a prime example for that was the just the other day me and Cody were testing and I was noticing all my misplays like a minute after they happened because we were playing super late at night and I was just tired. Had I been playing something like, and like I was playing VW at the time, had I been playing like Zoo Eldritch against this thing, like the room for error was would have been a lot like more minimized. 
I don't know when we're going to do an episode about proper playtesting and deck building and stuff, mm-hmm. but as a little preview for that, I think one thing that people need to do more of when they're testing, like me and Nikolai testing over remote duels and in person and stuff, when you're testing at somebody and you're trying to figure out your combos, that's fine figure out your combo but when you're playing a strategy that you're pretty familiar with and you misplay you should never take that misplay back that happens so much when i see people test and the worst thing you can do is you make a misplay where you you know you missequence something shuffled the wrong target back yada 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 because as soon as you do that then you're not making it concrete in your head that you fucked that thing up, and that's a possible mess play. Because, like, if somebody shuffles the wrong card back off of a virtual world effect, or, you know, Pot of Prosperity is an extra deck card, the wrong one, and they need it later that turn, don't be like, oh, fuck, I actually need this card, so I'm going to swap it. Don't do that in testing. You should be taking your testing more seriously than a regionals, because you can't take shit like that back in a regionals, or bigger. So don't do it in testing. So when you make that misplay in testing, you'll be like, okay, now I know for sure this sequence is correct or this sequence is incorrect, and you're not going to make that same mistake when it matters. Not only just that, I think one thing that helps too is if you don't take the plays back, you kind of open up the possibility of there being another sequence that you might not have seen because you normally would have gone this route instead. Which is the main reason why you can never build a deck off pure theory. I... You can solitaire any deck, and I can build a million different strategies that can set up unbreakable boards, but that doesn't change the dynamic of playing against another person. So yep. my deck, my Earth Machine deck, my current pet project, is gone through 10, 15 different iterations, and I can say the most significant changes happen immediately after getting a good couple hours in of testing, because the difference of being able to play a strategy in theory, even like against theoretical hand traps and interaction, will never do the same as against a real person. So like playing against Nikolai, I was playing this really greedy 60 card variant with uh, my super heavy samurais. And they did exactly what I wanted to, but there was this weird dynamic of like the card drawn and like the the i don't know how to put it but basically there was a weird interaction that i thought was minor that turned out to be just slightly more relevant than i was putting or that i was thinking of originally and it just did enough to bring the deck's value down so i started like making changes purely off that whereas if i went through pure if i went purely off of just theory alone I would never came to that conclusion. Yeah. Always some things to like take note of. So I think the last kind of thing that I wanted to cover with side decking today was um, do either of you kind of have ratios in mind with like what kind of cards you want to be side decking? Like, do you have a certain amount of hate, like hate towards uh, like the tier one decks, do you have a certain amount, like a certain percentage of your side deck dedicated to, let's say, control matchups where you have like back row hate, stuff like that? Um, so I know for me, I like to, like, it all, like it all, 
honestly, it's always meta dependent, right? Um, mm-hmm. If there is a be all one best deck like there used to be back in like the Teledad formats and stuff like that, right? Where um, you can dedicate majority of your side deck to just dealing with those like cody was alluding to or cody was mentioning earlier when he built his dragon ruler deck to have his main deck catered towards the mirror and then his side deck was catered towards the other best deck which was spellbook at the time um sometimes that happens and that's how you cater your side deck towards that right uh right now as it stands because there's obviously there's obviously like the two best decks being like drytron and vw right but you want to be able to still you you know that there's going to be these other rogue matchups that you're going to see um so you want to kind of cater your side deck to be able to not just deal with like the best decks but also uh take on those other decks and like cody was mentioning earlier as well you kind of like dim dim down the power level of certain cards that you could play like he was saying you could just play cosmic cyclone against eldritch or you could just play evenly matched to you with those kind of matchups right um, and those are really strong blowout cards. However, you now limit the power you have against certain other decks that Lightning Storm could be the better option, right? So dumb down the power versus some decks to kind of put those cards towards. Um, right now, I have, I think it's three, or uh, three to six cards I play against uh, Drytron, and that would be my three Cycle Reader and my three... Uh, it would be Dark Ruler. However, I, for most decks I build right now, I main deck Droll. Because Droll has such a hard impact against that matchup, but also has slight, uh, uh, like, impact against, like, other decks in the format as well. That it's relevant enough to play in the main deck, so that helps. Uh, and then, like, the other side deck cards are cards that kind of have a good matchup against multiple uh, decks as well so like Lancia being good against VW but it also has applications against Bird Up uh, Dark Ruler just being a good enough answer versus a lot of matchups minus the VW matchup right uh, I honestly think I don't side deck against VW as much as I should and that's something I'm probably going to look into more uh, but then like Backroad Hate I have uh, the Feather Duster, the Lightning Storm and the Red Reboot to kind of make sure that I have that 50% chance of seeing one in my opening hand if I go second and being able to blow them out and then kill them. So, I think uh, I think one thing that people can do themselves a big favor is setting up their side deck to be big enough for the uh the meta and by that i mean uh like one thing you were saying there right is you're maining droll for you know x reason regardless of if i agree with somebody's x reason to doing something if they put thought into it then that's what i want uh you you main deck droll i don't know if i necessarily agree with that but you have solid enough reasoning as to why you want to do it now what that does do though is that makes your side deck bigger and what i mean is a card that you know you were going to side 100 percent that you were confident enough to put it in your main deck now made mm-hmm. your side deck like 18 cards if that makes sense yep. so yep. if 
you are on the same line of thinking as me or the same train of thought that your side deck is more important than your main deck, then you're only doing yourself a favor by making your side deck as big as possible. So in a world where you say Droll is the the card you want to main, sure. Uh, another example of a card that's got a similar application is like Nibiru, right? Some people yep. are choosing to main Nibiru right now. Like my current list right now, I'm maining Nibiru. Again, I don't know if it's correct. It's just a variable I'm testing. But the point being, Nibiru being in my main now makes my side three cards bigger. So yep. do yourself a favor by accommodating what you can in the main deck without lowering your chances to succeed, obviously. And you will then just now have a big enough overlap to deal with the meta. So one consequence of that, or one benefit, depending on how you look at it, is I'm looking at what my theoretical side deck is right now. And I have the cards that are the main deck, obviously, like Nibiru and Ash and whatnot. Cards that are like side deck worthy that I weren't good enough to main. But I don't have a lot that I would want to side against, specifically Virtual World. So I have the obvious, you know, Lancias. But I don't really know if I have anything else that I'm confident I would bring in. Because I have like Lancias, Drolls, uh, Cycle Readers, Storms, Dark Rulers. I'm not doing Storm or Dark Ruler. I'm not doing Cycle Reader, obviously. Droll is suspect. I don't think I'd bring that in against VW. So I'm only citing three cards. And if we're all in agreement that Virtual World is public enemy number one, the deck that you need to be side decking for, you should probably be attributing more than three slots to your deck. Yeah. That's so, why I was mentioning. Yeah. Uh, I probably don't side enough for that matchup. And I think neither I should... do I. And I think honestly, yeah. that might be one of the reasons why virtual world is seeing as much success as it is, because there's just not a lot of catch all good blanket outs of the strategy. Like you can agree. Cycle reader. Insane. Lancey is very good. It's not insane to the degree that cycle reader versus Drytron is. Yeah. What is side deck four, five, and six for VW? I don't know. I honestly think that you saying that you main deck the Nibiru, I think that might be the better choice moving forward because Nibiru has, although Nibiru has like almost no application against the back row decks, um, Nibiru has enough of an application towards both VW and Drytron that I can see warranting it on top of also being really good against other rogue strategies that just spam monsters on board, right? That like I know Yeah, go ahead. I know the like the deck I'm building right now, like the Mermail list, right? Um there I have a couple combos that I can uh stop Nibiru from hurting me by making like Toad the fifth summon or something like that, right? But honestly like that's th those are very like those are catered uh, combo lines that I have to do that, and they don't happen all the time. So I know for a fact that like my deck will very much get hurt by Nibiru, and there's a like a lot of the heavy combo decks you see play right now, like uh, Ad Emancipator or Dragon Link or those kind of decks. They they have the same issue is they, they fall into that category of they get, they can get into these really strong plays, but they get Nibiru'd and they die. Uh -huh. So that's why I think, like, you maining Nibiru is what, like, you were saying is just that um, increase in your side deck because that card has the application against the two big biggest decks 
but that is also going to be that card that you would normally side deck against those other rogue matchups anyway. So, yep. Um, that actually reminded me of something. Something that I've only been kind of doing the last couple months, maybe a year, is uh, appreciating just the difference in power versus consistency. So obviously, you know, if you think about it, if you had to write a fucking essay on it, you could. But there's a huge fundamental difference when you're building your deck on when you're playing uh, your hand trap suite. Let's say you're running six to nine hand traps. And this really kind of became the focus of my attention when Eldlich was like the deck everyone was building and everyone was trying to accommodate for. So everyone was now maining Ash Blossom. Everyone was now maining Skullmeister, Ghost Bell, and then sometimes even more hand traps, right? So people were just hitting every hand trap they could in their deck. And then also saying, well, Ghost Bell just does enough against everything that we're going to play Ghost Bell. Uh, Skullmeister does enough that we're going to play against everything. DD Crow does enough. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah. I stopped going off that theory because I did for a while. I was playing 15 hand traps and 12 of them were those cards I was mentioning. That I realized if I'm going to play hand traps, I'm going to give up on the like overall reach and the wide array or the wide array of like hits these hand traps can make. So it's like, yeah, ghost mm-hmm. bell can hit a, B, C and D, but yeah. like outside of specific interactions, I'm not going to win the game ever off ghost bell. Right. I need very specific routes to go my way. I same thing could be said about Skullmeister. So I actually went from main decking Skullmeister, ghost bell and DD crow to just not playing them at all. And the reasoning for that was, if I'm going to fill slots of my deck, I'm going to say, fuck it for the wide array of options they deal with, and now focus on what's the most brutal card I could play in the situations where if I could have a card, I wish it was this card. So for that reason, I started saying, instead of playing Skullmeister, Ghostbell, DD Crow, I'm now going to start playing Nibiru, Droll, and Gamma. Now, Gamma is sometimes dead, Droll is sometimes dead, Nibiru is sometimes dead. But you know which hand traps I wish I had when I'm getting fucking blown out? Sometimes Nibiru, sometimes Droll, and sometimes Gamma. Those are the cards that will win you the game, as opposed to, I hope everything goes my way otherwise. (laughs) You know what I mean? So that's why I stopped playing the, the hand traps that are, like, good across the board. And I'm playing, I want the ones that, if I draw them, at least I know they can they can win me the game if I do have them when I need them. Yep. And, like, th- that seems obvious, right? If you're hearing this, and you're like, well, yeah, obviously. But think about it. Like, how many people are actually building their side, or their main deck, and they're saying, I'm going to play Gamma in a deck that almost never utilizes Gamma to its fullest ability, but it's just, I needed fucking, I needed a effect veiler, or like a fucking effect negation that just removed the threat. Like, I just was willing to sacrifice consistency just for that power I needed right then and there. And that's why Mm -hmm. I'm playing Nibiru right now in my main deck, because I just wanted Nibiru to blow out the opponent, and 
right now my main deck is like 38 cards i'm probably going to go back to putting droll in my deck droll only has applications against like two of matchups maybe like 40 percent of the field but that 40 loses to droll and that oh, yeah. that huge win is what i'm going for i'm not going for good enough so saying good enough, right? Where do you find Ash Blossom in that category Ash right Blossom now? Ash Blossom is insane. There's almost yeah. no situation where Ash Blossom's bad right now. And I used to hate Ash Blossom when like Dragon Link was the best deck. It just didn't do enough, right? Because there were so yeah. many good summon from deck type effects. Uh, right now, Ash Blossom's strong enough to just stop some strategies dead in their tracks. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, uh, Ash Blossom is like, I've never seen a card be so, like, hateful. Like, pure Britney Spears toxic to rogue <laughs> strategies. God. Like, Ash Blossom is Britney, bitch. Because, like, every rogue strategy hates that card. I will oh, tell yeah. you. Okay. Perfect example. I had my... Uh, old format deck built when that was all the rage right all the local kids were building different format decks so some kids had like 2014 zombies and 2012 whatever yada 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 i built 2013 dragon rulers because i'm that guy i had a max rarity everything was so fucking pretty ulti maxis the works i play against one of them right and he had 20 i don't know 2015 something 2016 doesn't matter i go first effect pitch lightning and a title to try to summon Tempest from my deck. He goes Ash Blossom. I'm like, holy fuck, that's a card. I lose. Pass. I found out right then and there <laughs> that Dragon Rulers, if they came back, would hate Ash Blossom as much as the rest of the rogue strategies. And Ash Blossom <laughs> yep. says, fuck you to everything. I hear it's a really good card. Yeah, it's and like, card. and there's so many strategies that are like, well, Ash Blossom kind of sucks here, but whatever. Yeah, there's a lot of strategies that can't say that. So well, I summon, I summon a deep sea diva. Ash I get Blossom. Yeah. Oh my gosh, my call, I'm, I'm dead. I, I, I can't do anything else because <laughs> like that was like my way of getting Neptibus to the field, <laughs> and I Neptibus is the deck. So yeah. perfect example, <laughs> my Earth Machine deck. I was playing three, uh, Derricane, right? It's big uh, chain link way to block my Ooh. my chain link one search, right? So sure. I go chain link one effect, chain link two Derricane from hand. And dodges Ash. I'm the best. And then I realized, wait, that was step A. Step B, C, D, E, F, and G also search. Yeah. Fuck. So I'm like, Ash all of it. Yeah, and like <laughs> Ash is gonna screw me no matter what. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then like what? the thing is, there's some effects right now, and this is like kind of the the biggest catalyst for why I think Ash is uh ash is like as good as it is because we got to a point in the game now where search effects they're we're playing Yu-Gi-Oh, right so you your costs are usually in the form of discards or resources right so you're having to pay a card to do a thing perfect example is yep. what curtis has brought up imagine playing cyanide mining and getting ashed like that fucking sucks and oh, yeah. there is so many cards like that like one of the reasons why i stopped trying to fix evil twin as an archetype is because that deck cannot play through any hand trap so you kind of just need to use evil twin as a bait for hand traps 
but it sucks because like even the way you play around hat traps loses to ash so like every time you're like live to at home pitch a card and they're like ash and you're like okay fuck you too it's like it sucks <laughs> yeah i don't know ash is just yeah so ash is good. just so good right now yeah, yeah. No, actually, you know, you were you were mentioning there, like, cards like Nibiru and Droll and Gamma also being, like, these just really strong cards right now. Uh, I honestly think that Gamma um, now uh, needs to get more attention just because there's so many cards that, like, Gamma is just, like, the out, like you said, right? Um, there's lines of play that certain decks do where if you just Gamma them there and then, they kind of have to stop. Yeah. Uh, not only just that, Gamma is a very very good out towards bfd yeah no that was the old uh that was the reason why people started playing into the uh gossip shadow line to the point where people were almost not even trying to set up chuche it was like gossip shadow plus bfd because a lot of situations where you can tell if you're playing against v uh vw if their lineup plays weak or not, right? Like you can kind of tell from the way they start their combo if their plays a little bit lacking. So you can almost hold a gamma and then just save it for your turn and then blow them out completely by not only stopping VFD but then starting your turn with mm -hmm. like two and like with two monsters already. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's the one thing that like when I was building the Mermail deck was how like what what can I do to because the initial idea I had when building it was. Um, playing Mizuchi because yep. everybody was playing like forbidden drops and stuff like that and people who don't know uh Mizuchi will negate any spell effect that happens like even super poly it'll negate it because it doesn't start a chain to negate it just stops it it's like no that's what we need to do for an episode actually sorry to cut you off yeah that's fine all three of us have head judge regionals and other events so all of us are kind of a little bit more used to like weird interactions but holy fuck, it would be fun to explain some rulings and things that you need to deal with, like the abyss scale oh, yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. So, I'll, like, I'll let you get back to it, but, like... Yeah. Good. That, that was, like, the idea I had, right? Like, it was such, like, a niche thing that the deck can do. Like, is that, like, mermails can make VFD as well. Um, but there was just, like, this niche line of play that I was looking at going, like, VFD with uh, abyss lace. Uh, Abyss Lacia with a Mizuchi equipped to it, right? That right there is just so strong in its own. But then when I was looking at it, I'm like, well, like, what if I get Gamut? Crap. Is there a way I can do this where I can have Mizuchi and Toad? Maybe. So, like... But yeah, like, you, they're, they're just... Having Gamma, I think, right now is so strong because then people have to, like, you're saying people now have to go into, like, a different line of play, like the Gamma, or, like, the Gossip Shadow line of play in order to protect VFD now instead. And then that leaves VFD vulnerable to other cards now. Yeah. Um, like, that would leave, like, I don't know, no, that wouldn't leave it vulnerable to that card, but you know what I mean. Like, like the, it now has, like, a rock, paper, scissors type deal, where it's like, I can do this, but now I'm vulnerable to this, but if I go this way, I'm vulnerable to this, right? So it's I yeah. guess a damned if you do, damned if you don't moment, but... Yeah, people need to not look into those situations, like what you just said. Like, if you're mm -hmm. in a situation, like, uh... Like, Nick, we were playtesting last night, right? Yeah. And you set up a floating extra deck monster. He summons a vermilion dragon mech. And it's like, he literally knows I have a torrential. 
because he saw it from Trap Trick. And he's like, huh? you like how I, f I, I forced you to activate and floated with my dragon mech, eh? And I'm like, you know what? Yeah, it literally didn't matter. <laughs> there was zero skill involved with that interaction. That was off. I'm fucked either way, so obviously I'm going to Torrential. It's like, that's not like a situation that people need to get so hung up about and think that like it's some crazy skillful interaction. It's like, no, those no. situations come up, and when they happen, don't sweat it. That's what happens. You you play it and you move on. Because mm -hmm. sometimes you play those, oh, fuck, he had it anyways moments, right? You know what card I want to play right now just because of that? Imperm. Sorry, say that again. Impermanence. What about impermanence? I like. I don't know. Like with how people are like playing their combos out and stuff like that, impermanence just seems like it's going to be better. I mean, like obviously we're gonna have a ban list, in, like hopefully in the next two weeks or something like that, and the things will obviously change. But I mean, like just like how people are uh, evolving their combos and the, the end boards that they're ending on. It just seems like impermanence is actually going to be a good answer again. I could uh, be wrong, but unless something changes, I disagree. But that's yeah. more so because impermanence and Valor type effects will—it's like we need a very specific line of play to become so prevalent in the meta that demands an effect like impermanence specifically. Like, if yeah. we get some line of play that Drytron wins or loses off of forcing a Union Carrier out, but they also yeah. have a 1-2 combo that sets up a guaranteed Herald of Orange Light, then I can see that the counterbalance to that would be side decking Imperm. But you see, like, there's a lot of hoops you gotta jump through for that to be, mm -hmm. like, the result. Yeah. As soon as one person does well, like the extravagance is happening tomorrow, right? The extravagance, yeah. Yeah. if yeah. the guy who wins the extravagance was main decking three impermanence, I guarantee you a huge chunk of the player base is going to just jam three imperm back in their deck without putting any thought into it. Oh, absolutely. So, Sounds about right. Yeah, so like when you get to that, if you're reading this, or if you're listening to this podcast when it comes out, probably like Monday or Tuesday when it does, and you're like, what the hell? Impermanence is in every top cut extravagance deck. Cody was wrong. It's like, well, yeah, you can say <laughs> that now, but that's like how trends work in Yu-Gi-Oh. Yep. I think that's a good spot to kind of cut the episode off today. Yeah. Um. Wait, there's one thing. So, there's one thing I need yep. to elaborate on, right? So, this is specifically <laughs> side deck stuff, and there was a couple points that I wrote down that I needed to really emphasize for this episode we already kind of we already kind of spoke on uh focusing your side deck right like making mm -hmm. sure you know why everything's there for a specific mm -hmm. reason yeah uh when you have overlap in your side deck like cycle reader it hits drytron very hard it kind of hurts eldlich that doesn't mean you need to bring it in for eldlich but, like, having a lot of overlap, like having Lightning Storms plus, you know, X things deals with a wide array of decks that Lightning Storm yeah. is. So that's, that's a Dark good Ruler being a good example. Yeah, Dark Ruler deals with a lot of rogue strategies plus, you know, hits Dragoon and yada, yada, yada. The thing we never talked about, though, is uh, my 
absolute pure hatred, malice incarnate, just fury with people side decking cards that sometimes do what you want it to. That sets me off so fucking much when I see people side decks that are sometimes good enough. Perfect example. If you're side decking, right? And you have nothing to beat Dragoon, right? You're not siding Dark Rulers or Kaijus, nothing. Or, and you're like, I'm going to side deck evenly matched. Like, what the fuck is evenly matched going to do to Dragoon? And even if you could bait it out beforehand, why are they not just going to keep Dragoon? Like, a side deck option that sometimes does something. Pisses me off to no end. Uh, Starlight Road, right now. That guy did well in the extravaganza, sure. But how the hell can you tell me Starlight Road is correct when evenly matched can also just out everything? And you're like, well, I guess I banished Starlight Road because I it's I only have one set now. And <laughs> I can't Starlight Road if I only have one set. No. So, well, like, man, if this was a solemn. <laughs> like, you see what I mean? Like, cards that, like, yeah. just only sometimes deal with the threat. Uh, Gamma is a good catch-all answer to VFD. Uh, I hate it when people side-deck Forbidden Droplets against VFD, and they're only playing, like, three traps main board. It's oh, like, no. That's, it, that's it's so like, stupid. Well, Droplets is so good. It deals with VFD Chuche. You just have to pitch the trap. I'm like, yeah. How often, you draw you drawing, how often are you drawing Droplets and your trap so you're telling me your thing sometimes works you see what i'm getting at like i hate mm -hmm. it when people play shit that's like sometimes good yeah like i there's, hate that yeah like there's a reason i'm not side decking for tablets for the mirror match yeah like i have I'm, three drop cards i'm not gonna have them in my hand all the time yeah like i'm playing droplets in the earth machine deck mainly because the deck plays traditionally like seven plus traps but more importantly, there's a whole dynamic with how the Earth Machine deck like utilizes its hand. And like, I'll play my combo out and end with six cards. So like, discarding is not an issue for that deck. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot that goes into this shit. But again, the whole point of why I kind of wanted to talk about something again before we cut this off was don't side deck cards. I'm trying to think of a card off the top of my head because I tend to not play these cards because obviously I I wouldn't if I hate them this much. Just don't play cards that like are sometimes good in these situations. I just I think you actually kind of mentioned a couple of those cards like when you were saying earlier the hand traps that people are saying that have enough of like an application right they're sometimes good enough right. Uh, Side decking hand traps like Ghost Bell or uh, Skullmeister or a DD Crow, even right? Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, why would you side deck DD Crow when uh, Cycle Reader is just better right now? And then the other two side deck cards, like the other two I mentioned, they're like, if you're not main decking these cards already, there is zero reason to side deck them. Well, like I, the whole dynamic of DD Crow versus Cycle Reader, there's I don't, it's not that cut and dry, but like the other thing you're talking about, like Ghost Bell. Ghost Ball is another example of if somebody's side decking it, I don't understand it, like what you said. I if somebody tells me they side Ghost Bell because it's like it has enough applications 
going first and second, but it has like a pseudo insurance policy for hand traps for when I'm going first. And it's like, those are the situations where I want to deal with stuff like Nibiru. You know what I mean? Like the big blowout hand traps. So if you're playing Call by the Grave, even though I fucking hate that card, uh, <laughs> Call by the Grave seems really strong when your opponent's like Nibiru. And you're like, all right, Call by the Grave. You're like, okay, that's fine. Your board's still gone and summon Nibiru. It's like, if you're siding Call by the Grave and the hand trap that kills you most in Nibiru, why are you siding Call by the Grave? Yeah. Uh, also, before we leave, I gotta talk about the, the random little funny regionals incident where I'm head judging and Jordan is playing... I don't fucking remember what you're playing. Were you playing Mermills? No, I think you were playing some other... Mer you're probably, probably playing Medolce or some jank. And I told you to side deck Wing Dragon of Raw. Oh, oh wait, no, that was God. the regionals I, I, I topped, I think. I think I was playing that one. Either way, uh, I wasn't yeah, involved with no, You told with me this. to side deck the Wing Dragon of Raw, but you told... Uh, I told Brett. <laughs> yeah, you told Brett to side in Threatening Roar for when people side deck Wing Dragon of Raw for when they when he's side decking. <laughs> no, it wasn't, it wasn't specifically for Wing Dragon of Raw, but he needed just a defensive card. And I told him, just play Threatening Roar. There's no card that guarantees you won't die this turn like Threatening Roar does. And he was playing Strikers at the time. So he just yeah. needed a card to give himself a turn. And obviously, I think this is the first regionals after we had time rules change. So like Threatening uh -huh. Roar actually had more of like an impact because of that. I told Jordan, play Wing Dragon of Raw because people are <laughs> flank, playing Sphere Mode, right? Yeah. And I, I did the same thing. I played fucking Raw to, and I tried to scum Curtis for the same reason. So he's yeah. playing Brett, all mutual friends. They're getting yeah. into end of game three. And fucking Brett, Sphere Mode's Jordan. Blows out his whole board. Sets a card. I think... I don't remember how the exact A-B sequence went. But Jordan fucking summons Wing Dragon of Raw. Yep. With the sphere mode. <laughs> yep. It's gonna kill him. huge attacker now. I'm going to attack Brett and I'm just going to end his life. Mm-hmm. What happens? Not literally. <laughs> Jordan is gonna kill him with the fucking Raw. Brett... Flips the threatening roar because fuck you, <laughs> and he ends up winning that game because George just can't kill him in time. Oh, that's good shit. Uh, that's a perfect example of people side decking for side deck and it working out. It just happened to be like the stupid, most, the, the the funniest, stupidest little interaction. Yeah, oh, I love that shit. Oh, that was, I hated that happened. But at the same time, like you said, it was just too funny, and yeah. you you couldn't even stay mad. Mm -hmm. Oh, I tried so. doing the exact same thing to Curtis too. Both me and him were five and zero at that regionals, and yeah. we're playing it out. And <laughs> I knew he was gonna side deck Spearmo because I'm playing Goki, obviously, and just full yeah. you linking him. <laughs> I'm like, I'm gonna side deck Wing Dragon Raw. Why? Because not only is that a common side deck card. But he's a good friend of mine, and I fucking helped him build his side deck. So I literally know he has sphere mode in his side deck. So I'm like, ah, I'm gonna get him, and he just didn't draw it. But like, the idea was, the idea was there. Oh man, that's too good. Mm -hmm. So just yeah. wrap things up. Oh, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say just to wrap things up. Uh, I think our next episode. The plan right now is uh, to do an episode kind of on our in-depth tournament 
tournament experiences, like ready for them. Uh, the tournament experiences themselves should be a bit more of like a fun episode. We're going to talk about just fun stories, stupid things that have happened to us. Um, this is all kind of in. Uh, this will all change though if a ban list decides to drop at any point. We'll just quickly do an episode about that instead, and then we'll leave the turning experience episode until one after the ban list one. Yeah, the uh, the hope for me is I would like to have that guy I keep referencing. I keep mentioning Raffi. I want to have Raffy. him as a special guest in the next week or two. I need to arrange with him, obviously. But uh, I'd love to have him on just to kind of pick his brain a little bit. Again, because out of anybody I know personally, uh, anyone from the Winnipeg scene, he's probably had the most success in the remote dual circuit. So, you know, yeah. pick his brain about how he's found his success, his deck building theory. He obviously caters his deck list to the remote dual locals he's in at any given day. So like he'll change his deck list just to join a different city's locals. Like that's to the degree he he goes just to find his success. Stuff like that and you know yeah. ask him about his experiences, what it's like playing random people from literally all over the world right now at any given day. So hopefully we can pick his brain yeah. if I can get him on next episode or you know at some point. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Oh, I'm sure we can. I'll message the guy. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll. I need to talk to him anyways and prep for that three verse three. So I'll see if I can bring mm-hmm. it. Yep. Solid. Uh, so do either of you have a viewer question for the week? Well, I guess like a question of the week and uh, tie into next week's episode of like, uh, talking about either like if we can get Rafi talking about his remote dual experiences. Uh, the question would be. I guess we'll have two questions then. Uh, how has your experiences been with remote duels? And are there anything, any funny stories you can tell? Um, if we do an episode regarding just the fun experiences with tournaments in general, what kind of funny story do you have? Uh, what kind of like experience do you have for the like a regional that you prepared for or another bigger event you prepared for that you'd like to tell? Obviously, if we get a ban list just unexpectedly that'll we'll kind of change gears on that but absolutely yeah. um did we have anyone say anything about the last time about side deck or i i was yeah, looking it up and nobody nobody made any comments wow, nobody so loves me fit. wow no right it's fucked up <laughs> just you though right just you no everyone everyone likes you too they hate me it's fucked up <laughs> it's true uh-huh. i'm everyone's favorite it's true i just get along with everyone and I think we'll wrap it up there. Uh, if you have any questions for us, you reach us on any of our social media. Uh, it's WPGFTK. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Um, you can DM us personally if you have any questions or have any comments about the show. Any sort of uh, review or anything is always be appreciated. Feedback. Yeah. And with uh, that, before yeah. we go, I'm shouting out my own Twitch now because I'm actually going to start like streaming some Yu-Gi-Oh content on it. I haven't Yo. streamed on my Twitch in like a year or two, but I think I'm still partnered or affiliated. Either way, uh, you should check out uh, twitch.tv slash FTK TV. And uh, yeah, come throw me a follow. I'm going to start streaming my remote duels experience from my perspective, so that'll be fun. You guys can come backseat duel and hate on my choices because I'm so fucking adamant and confident in what I say. 
so you can start nitpicking what I do from behind. <laughs> and yeah. If my internet were good enough, I would. <laughs> yeah, I thought Elon Musk was hand delivering you some shit. What's going on? Yeah, he, he is, but I mean, like, I'm still waiting for the email. Yeah, well, he smokes he's, the he's devil's lettuce it. on Joe Rogan's podcast, so you can't trust him. He's building True. it right now, so yeah, I'm waiting on it to be He's finished. fucking hand building it. If he doesn't walk out of a cave like fucking Tony Stark, hand delivering the fucking Mark One internet to you, I swear to God. <laughs> I'm gonna come hunt his no. ass down. I'm probably just gonna get it in a box at my local post office. Wow, anticlimactic. No. You're not even extremely. Gonna, you're not even gonna be part of the Phase Five Marvel universe. No. no. <laughs> Unfortunate. Anyways. Anyways. <laughs> um. Thanks for listening yeah. to the first turn. Um. Hope you guys have a good night. And uh, as Bye. always, uh, shout out to our favorite uh, threatening roar user. Bye, Brett. Bye, Bye Brett. Brett.